I would just like to say that this is the second podcast Anthony and I have done without Anna. And we feel like two kids who have just been let uh, allowed to stay up by the babysitter until the parents come home. And it's the greatest feeling. Just running wild. I mean, I feel like the fat kid in a candy store. I'm just grabbing everything, eating everything, everything. I'm, nope. I mean, too much fun. Yep. Nope. But, Mom's on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> it's about time. It's about time. <laughs> it's about taking more vacations, mom. <laughs> but while you pass that chocolate sauce, Michael, today, yes, Anthony. today we have Sarah Hernandez joining us. And what's really interesting is she's running to be a trustee on the Los Angeles Community College District. Uh, fun fact here, LA has the largest community college district in the United States which is basically the world as well. No shit. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it, it serves nine community colleges and something like Sarah's position is she's in charge of handling the billions of dollars that they get through bonds and how they allocate it through all of their nine colleges and all of the other systems that are put in place to help people be educated. Wow. Well, I, it sounds like we have a lot to talk with her about because I know that she started a nonprofit uh, in the education space to help low income students. Uh, I think the saying she uses is get to and through college, which is cool. Uh, and then she's also yeah. like a lawyer. So oh, she's very she, she, accomplished. She, <laughs> person. she wears many hats. She's wow. a college instructor, a lawyer. She started a nonprofit. Uh, she's a mother um, oh. and now she's running uh, to be on this college community board. Damn. What do you do? I got a newsletter. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, <laughs> Which is great. Oh, you all about. should subscribe and, and totally tell your friends. It'll be great. It's going to be, it's going great. We're doing great. Yeah. All right. Well, enough about us. Let's jump into this oh, conversation. God, Anna, probably come back. Yeah. <laughs> you are going to vote tomorrow in the election. Millennial generation is the biggest, America's youngest, youngest country since 1965. The political revolution of the millennials. Welcome, Welcome to, to political, political playlist. playlist. <laughs> All right, are we ready, guys? Happy hour. Happy, Happy hour. hour. <laughs> you that up so oh, God. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to see you. How are you doing today? Good, 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 good. Just, you know, Living my best life or trying to, at least. <laughs> you know, just to start us off, Sarah, one thing that we've noticed is there's so many young people running for local positions like yourself, and you're running to be a trustee for the Los Angeles Community College District. Now, a lot of times we really don't know what that means. So what does that entail? Yes, that, you know, it's funny. I, I, I ran for Congress previously in 2017, and now I'm running for community college. And the, the main difference I find running for LA Community College Board is that when I call up my friends and tell them that I'm running for this LACC board seat, I spend like half an hour just explaining to them what I'm running for. Or, you know, Congress yeah. is an easy sell, people know what it is. You know, you can find you can find snippets of it on, you know, nighttime news. This is a little bit more obscure, though. I think just by that whole fact, that whole reality makes it even more exciting to a certain extent. There's so much that can be done at the community college level. It's under the radar for better or for worse. Um, for worse, you know, I think there's a lot of room for improvement at the community college level. 
uh, the better. There's just so much that can be done, um, given that there's a lot more autonomy and flexibility. So the Community College Board in Los Angeles is the, um, the Community College District is the largest community college district in the nation, meaning wow. arguably it's in the world because community colleges are really a product of the American public education system. Um, it is nine community colleges throughout Los Angeles. Um, it serves around roughly 300,000 people. Um, and there is uh, a, a bond program or multiple bond programs that fund through this district. So there's a lot there's a, there's a lot of public funding that goes um, through the LACCD, um, billions of dollars in bond funding uh, that goes towards construction projects in this district. So, you know, serving on the board is, um, is, is quite a responsibility in the sense that you're overseeing those billions of dollars uh, in, in bond money and construction projects, as well as the overall budget for, for um, the community college district. It's always amazing to see how large those budget budgets are, especially for something like the, you know, Los Angeles Community School District. Do you? Uh, how many people are on the board with you? So there's there's seven board members, um, and it's an at-large race. So what is interesting is that while this would be considered down ballot, meaning that you know it's not it's not like by the Congress, it's not like running for mayor of LA, it's not something that people just intrinsically sort of know about. Um, it is a seat that, that, that people don't have a lot of familiarity with, but because it's an at-large seat, you're actually running, I'm about over two and a half million people will be seeing your name on the ballot. Um, so it is a really large race. I mean, I could be running for like governor of like a small state uh, with that many people in your, your voter universe. So it is this yeah. like weird sort of, you know, the, the weird sort of reality of politics in LA is that, you have these huge races for seats that seem very provincial, but actually have a huge impact, not just on LA as a whole or the region, but really like the entire United States you're dealing with these big, big sort of issues like higher education. Yeah. It, it's funny you uh, forget how many people are in uh, vote in these races in large cities. And it's true when you look at, on a smaller state, smaller level, some people are only, you know, have 30,000 people who are even voting in that race, um, especially for positions that people are not as aware of. Um, so yeah. you got to do a lot of handshaking. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe with There's COVID, no just bumping, but yeah. yeah, right, exactly. Well, and here's the like really exciting thing is that you know some there might be some folks out there that are like, hey, I never really remember seeing that on the ballot, and, and the reason may be because you know it used to be that the community college seats and the races were lumped in with local elections, and local elections in LA and in Cal, uh, in Los Angeles specifically were always kind of their own sort of elections that happened in weird months like March. Um, and so the turnout was extremely low. I mean, even for the LA mayor's race, it was so very, very low turnout, oftentimes under 20%. I mean, you just didn't really have a lot of civic engagement or participation. Now these races are aligned with the state and federal elections. And so you're voting in November, you know, you have a primary in June, not a primary for this race, but you, you would typically, you know, for a federal or a state election, have a primary in June. And so there's a real opportunity to get a lot more voters involved and a lot more 
more voters engaged. So if you haven't heard about this race before, it's not necessarily your fault. It might just be that you didn't vote in a local election before. Um, and so now there's a real opportunity to get people involved physically around issues of really, really big importance in this country, education, higher education. So I'm, I'm curious, Sarah, you, you know, obviously you have a very extensive education background. Can you sort of talk about, let, let's take it back a little bit here and talk about when you sort of first got involved in education and that intersection that it had with politics? Yeah. So, I mean, th this is really in terms of like my interest in politics, it's really all driven and rooted in my educational experience. You know, I think, you know, education is so emotional for people because it's personal. Right. And so it really had, you know, really helped shape our worldviews. I grew up in a small farm town on the central coast. Um, it's, you know, Salinas, it's called the lettuce capital of the world. It's, you know, a farm worker town. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of movement around the farm worker movement in the 1970s. My parents were really involved with that, and that's how I you know, came to be in Salinas. Um, but I was, uh, you know, Salinas was a place where going to college was not the norm; it was the exception. Um, and I just happened to be one of those kids that applied to this random school on the East Coast that I had like received a letter about or I'd seen on the final four before I went to Duke University. Um, nice. and, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'd never even been to Duke. I'd never been to the state of North Carolina until I actually wow. like went for college. So and then you was, promptly left. <laughs> yeah. North Carolina is a beautiful place. Uh, I would love to yeah. go back. It's just you know, it's yeah, it's not on the it's not on the LA to New York. Right. right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it had like this really profound effect on just kind of my young adulthood of going from this really small farm town where not a lot of people left to go on to school to this private East Coast University with a lot of like you know East Coast punks kids and like Southern gentlemen and it was just like. <laughs> excuse my French, it was like a mind fuck. And I just yeah. it really started me thinking about, well, you know, educational opportunity and what happens to kids that I grew up with who don't have that educational opportunity and what is the differences in regards to kids who grow up in neighborhoods where their neighborhood schools are excellent or they can afford to go to private school. And like, you know, how does that play into, um, you know, income inequality and just the, the, the gap that we see between the haves and the have-nots. And so that's what really drove me towards education. I, you know, I started, I was a public policy major. I realized to talk about education, I wanted to be in the classroom so I could actually know what I was talking about. So when I came out to LA, I taught in South LA and Watts. Um, it was the hardest job I've ever had, the most powerful job I've ever had. Um, but I really quickly learned, as probably any teacher does, that you know, every single issue that we see and confront as a society plays out in the classroom every single day. You know, so whether that is talking about, you know, food deserts in South LA or lack of affordable housing or public safety or the lack of parks and green spaces, those all play out in your classroom. And for the most part, as a classroom teacher, you have very little control over those things. And those are factors that really, you know, they, they really um, play a part in the success of the students. And so, Seeing, you know, that there was all these outer, all these issues that um, were mostly local issues and mostly had to do with local politics, it really got me interested in that. And then seeing, you know, all these great intentions on the political level, especially locally, that really don't 
that really don't play out on the ground the way people want them to got me really interested in that sort of intersection of like the intentions we have as a society, the policies we pass and how they actually play out. It feels like education always plays a backseat as an issue for a lot of politicians. You know, why do you think that? Um, you know, I think that it's because the issue is so vast that was also another lesson I learned, not just through teaching, but I started a nonprofit that helped low-income kids get to anthropology. And it was very clear that, you know, you know, the answers are not clear. It is not simple. It is not clear cut. It is, you know, it is work of, and it's years of work. And, um, and, and it doesn't fit into, unfortunately, I think the lifetime of a politician it doesn't fit into term limits, you know, when you issues of education um, and then there's a lot of adult issues that play into it as well you know and you have a lot of other sort of special interests that play into um, the conversation when you're talking about how to how to make um, educational options available to, to those who need it the most but it, it's tough it's, it's a really tough issue that takes a lot of political will you know you mentioned the nonprofit that you started um, can you tell us a little bit more about that because um, I know that was one that I um, help support for a little bit. And I think it's one amazing way for people to be involved on a local level uh, when you look at uh, people trying to get involved. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I just kind of, you know, going back to my upbringing, I was so interested as a teacher at the, uh, of the concept of providing this sort of life-changing educational opportunity because of my own experience of the like contrast to going from this farm town to this like East Coast University. I really wanted to try and I guess like in a, this really sort of um, to a certain extent, kind of vain, like wanted to replicate that, you know, my own personal experience in the lives of my students. And so I, I started thinking about that a lot, like how to provide these opportunities to the students that were in my classroom. And I had these kids who would come into my classroom every day, three, you know, Francisco, Heaven, and Joel, and they would come in and, you know, the work started super organically. What started as, you know, after school tutoring, you know, moved to tutoring on the weekends, which, you know, led to summer programs, which led to mentoring sessions. And then, you know, I slowly, we created this nonprofit where we identified kids, you know, it started with kids in my classroom, but we identified low-income middle school kids across the city. And then we worked to create what we called life-changing educational opportunities with the goal of getting them to and through college. And so, you know, that meant everything from, you know, full-ride scholarships to some of the best, you know, independent schools here in this in city, like Harvard Westlake and Poly and Crossroads and Brentwood. Uh, we expanded that to work, you know, we were sending kids to Kate and Thatcher, which were, you know, really upscale boarding schools in Santa Barbara. We now send mm -hmm. kids over to Chilton and over Exeter on the East Coast. And then it was like wrapping around those services. We realized that was the easiest part. And it's like, what are all the services that our kids need to succeed? And so, I, you know, our motto for the longest time was like, by any means necessary. We paid for books, we paid for clothes, we paid for rent and for transportation and for braces and for therapy and for immigration lawyers and you know you name it we have we have really you know tried to create this cocoon where we like do whatever we can to make sure it can succeed and you know they have joelle went on and you know got a full ride to mit and graduated and wow um you know francisco our student that learns zapotec as a third language after his uh, native or after Spanish and his native Zapotec went on and graduated from Georgetown University and we had kids all around, you know, go to some of the best schools in this country. 
Um, awesome. But, you know, the reason why I'm running for the community college board, though, is really not those stories. It's the stories on, you know, the other side of the spectrum. It's our kids that we got into college and had to leave because they, you know, they, they simply couldn't afford the cost. And, you know, even with the job and taking care of family or, you know, our students that were in the foster care system that, you know, overcame all odds and got into schools on the East Coast but had to come back because they didn't have the emotional support. So even, right. you know, I had a student um, from Boyle Heights who got a full ride scholarship to Yale and was forced to come back during the pandemic and, you know, try and pass his online Yale courses with, you know, spotty Wi-Fi and in an apartment that he shared with eight other family members. And so, like, wow. those sort of stories really, you know, have pushed me to run for the community college board because I, those students have really taught me that it doesn't matter how many life-changing educational opportunities a nonprofit that I, you know, like hype can provide. And, you know, what, if we're really, really serious about income inequality and equity in this city, then we need a system that is going to provide high quality free college options to everybody, no matter who you are, you know, what life throws your way, um, to really make sure that we are providing, you know, the sort of equity that we, we talk about all the time, you know, we've talked about for the last year. And, um, again, it all seems to, you know, and, and all the issues I've, I've worked on, everything seems to come back to education. And that's, and that's why I'm running for the seat. I love that. Um, I love that phrase that you have to and through college, which I feel like you're absolutely right. So many times it's like, okay, they got the scholarship, then they're, you know, they're off and running, but no, there's so many other challenges that await, which I imagine as, as you indicated, with COVID now that has presented a whole enormous new set of challenges. So I guess my question is, you know, what do you think the role of the federal government and then the state level and local level is to help combat those challenges? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, obviously to provide those types of resources, you know, and that type of support, cost money right and it costs resources and there's a real opportunity with buy you know, with build back better and you know look there was a big push to get you know universal free community college for all um with build back better that that's not obviously the case anymore that that part got taken out but there's still going to be a lot of federal dollars that are coming down the pipeline for the community college system and i think i credit that to biden and his um, his efforts to really shine a spotlight on, on this part of the public education system and Dr. Joe Biden's, you know, personal experience as a mm -hmm. community college uh, professor. And so I think that there is a lot of momentum um, around how do we really truly create the community college system that our society needs today. And that is, you know, that is a system that is going to really identify not just how to get kids to and through the community college system off to a four year, but also like, how do we really think thoughtfully about the future of work and how do we create training programs where, you know, it may be, you know, where college is not a fit for a certain student, but we're training them for jobs in the 21st century and not, you know, and how are we going to do that in a way where they're actually, you know, they're actually going to succeed and we're going to see an ROI from that. And oftentimes that means that we need to have those wraparound supports and whether that is, you know, food, because many of our college students are, you know, are, are food insecure or housing or childcare, which is a huge one. I, I personally, I teach constitutional law at uh, 
at Valley College right now, the community college within the district. And the number one reason white students in this class is because of child care. You know, they don't have anyone wow. for their kids or, you know, so those are those are things that, you know, the system, if we want to succeed, we have to be really thoughtful about. And I, I think that the conversations are changing around, okay, well, we can't just focus on, you know, providing this academic program. We have to think about what are the other things that we need to do to support students. Now, is one of the roles as a trustee uh, to sort of help figure out what the future challenges are and how the programs within the colleges that are offered will meet those? For example, you said, you know, training and we know, I, I forget the statistic offhand, but it's something like 4 million coding jobs are unfilled right now because people lack those computer coding skills. So is, is one of your roles to identify that and to tailor potential curriculums to that? Absolutely. And, and okay. sorry, just to jump in there, um, Michael, you know, we're seeing on the national level, someone like John Ossoff in Georgia is mm -hmm. tailoring programs towards cybersecurity yeah. because obviously that's a massive right. issue going on in the country, ransomware. And, uh, you know, he's trying to get that through to some of the colleges in Georgia right now, actually. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, the the community college system, you, know, you have you have these schools that have a lot of autonomy. There's a shared governance structure, right? So you do have, you know, academic programming is part of, by and large, you know, a big product, you know, a big uh, in the purview of the, these individual schools and the, you know, the presidents and the faculty in a particular community college. But with the district, yeah, you have a lot of opportunity to identify grants, to identify funding and to really divert, you know, really divert, you have a platform to really kind of shine a light on, on the things that we need. And I think the, from a, you know, from a policy perspective, which is what you are, you know, as a board member, um, as a whole across the country, we need to do a better job at matching our academic programming with the types of jobs that are available today, you know, and, and oftentimes that's, you know, that's technical training. Like you said, there's a, like, you know, Anthony, there's a huge dearth of talent in this country when it comes to cybersecurity training. And, um, you know, Microsoft just announced that they're funneling millions of dollars into certain community colleges to make sure that they're training for that. And so, you know, the, the point of providing training at the community college level is not for the sake of providing training. It's to really make sure that we have a workforce that can, you know, that's educated enough to fill the jobs that are open. And so, you know, there is there is a really big need to make sure that we're doing a better job at that. Same goes with like sustainability. You know, the Pierce College um, has an automotive program. Um, in the district, and I'm just like disclaimer. I know nothing about cars, so I don't know like what your <laughs> but like you know they have well, I don't either. So <laughs> you just plug you plug it in right for energy, yeah. right? That's yeah, what you do, right? Yeah. yeah. So um, so you know they have an automotive program. They are they're currently you know shifting and evolving their curriculum to to really address EV and to make sure that you know people that are going through that training are, are trained on electric vehicles. But like we've got to be ahead of the curve. Like what about hydrogen? You know, there, yeah. our educational system needs to keep up with the innovation. And right now, innovation across the globe is going at a very, very quick pace. And so it really poses a challenge to policymakers to make sure that we're not like two steps behind, because that means that our economy is two steps behind. Um, and so I think there's a real opportunity to do 
um, to do a better job at that. And quite frankly, I think that requires fresh blood and that requires people that are young and keeping in, you know, keeping a tab on what's going on in our economy and, you know, just in society in general. So what you're saying is we need Elon Musk to come oh, teach no. them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think though, what's such an interesting point, especially with the community colleges that a lot of people don't, you know, college isn't for everyone, right? Let's, you know, let's just be honest. And a lot of people don't realize, is this in California that you get two free years of trade, you know, in college? Yeah. Oh, it's in LA. It's in LA. Wow. I mean, what a fantastic, I'm, and you know, one thing we've noticed with a lot of, uh, you know, bills, laws that get enacted by these politicians is people don't know, right. They just, it's getting the information to them. And something yeah. like that is so uh, amazing for someone who doesn't have the resources, right. They can go and try it out for two years if, right. they, if need be. How long has that program been in LA in the LA system so it's fairly new it's been around for a couple of years but okay. um you know it's I think you hit the nail on the head everything's about access right and yeah. technology has changed our world in that it is um you know it has it's created it's made democracy more accessible better of course um you know it's made so many things so much more success, accessible and with access access comes equity um, and we're lagging a little bit in the, you know, in the community college system, especially when it comes to LA College Promise, because I, I, I think you're right. Not everybody knows that you have the first two, you know, first two years of community college are waived if you go to a school at LACCD. And so um, that is, that, that's a problem. And, you know, that, that's also a policy issue and a marketing issue and, you know, making sure that we're meeting students where they are, especially students that can stand the game from that education the most. And so there is a real need to, to put that out there um, and make sure that, that people are taking advantage of it, which I think there's um, there's a lot of, there's some improvement that we need to do around that. Enrollment has plummeted through, through the pandemic. And so, um, you know, we, the only way to go, the only place to go is up, to be honest. And so there, there's a real need to do that work as well. Sarah, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions around education? I feel like, as you said, it's such a, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a big tent uh, issue. Uh, but as far as your work within community colleges, uh, where do you see people not quite have a clear idea of what some of those problems or, or challenges or, or positives are? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, from my own personal experience of just working with kids in the past 10 years, you know, going off to school, we often, you know, we've had kids that, as I mentioned before, have to come back and, you know, we, we've ushered them through the community college system to make sure that they can figure out a way to transfer or, you know, go on to a career. And, you know, I have found personally, you know, as an educated professional that has a background in education, navigating the labyrinth which is the community college system to make sure you have the proper credits and the proper classes to transfer to a csu or a uc is really hard i mean you have to be and to be an 18 year old kid um and not necessarily because you know obviously there's all people of all ages that utilize the community college system but to be a young person you know and to try and have that sort of self-starting 
mentality is, is motivation like, yeah you're you're really kind of you're you're really uh filtering out a lot of folks that aren't going to be able to take advantage of this opportunity that the community colleges provides and so you know again it goes into like how do we you know the unsexy work of how do we streamline the system how do we make sure that like english 101 here is english 101 there so that people aren't getting confused if people are very clear on like what their requirements are to get to um, like a UC or, you know, we have enough of those classes available so that you can take the courses you need to take to be able to graduate in two years and go off to a CSU, you know, that those are, that, that's the really like unsexy stuff that, that really needs to be better, you know, and yeah. we need to be focused and really strategic about how to, how to streamline that work. And that's the, I think that's the biggest for me is the biggest challenge. Um, you know, we have all of these great opportunities, but are they are they really opportunities if they're not providing the outcomes that we're, we're trying to get to, so. Well, you know, that maybe translates into, I noticed there was a, only a 30% graduation rate. Uh, you know, do you attest it to that or maybe not having the programs, some of them available, like you said, childcare, um, so students can really be taking advantage of the, you know, education system in, in general. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it, I, and that 30% number is higher than I, I've seen, you know, the data is a little bit, oh. <laughs> Ooh, um, yeah. like it's, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. And I think a lot of, you know, people come from all different walks of life to, to utilize the community college system. So there's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be challenges in getting people through to where they want to go, um, whether that is transferring or completing, you know, a certificate program. But um, yeah, I think it's, it is, um, there is a lot of work to be done to make sure that those that want to transfer are actually, actually have the opportunity to do that. Mm. Um, I have just a very, uh, random uh, sort of non sequitur here, which uh, I understand that you are a delegate. I was a delegate. Yeah, I was a delegate. Okay. <laughs> so I feel like I watch every convention and I see all of these people with signs and balloons and hats and I think who Michael are, wants to be one. Michael wants I to be one. Just, if you know anyone who's leaving and needs a seat filler, I'm I'm available. Uh, so can you just sort of talk about that? Like, what exactly is a delegate? How did you become a delegate? Was that like fun or a nightmare? <laughs> so it is or a, a, a little column A, a little column B. Yeah, it is a very yeah. so. So you could do a whole show. You could do multiple shows on this. Um, okay. You know, the, the Democratic Party has all sorts of opportunities to be delegates. You could be a yeah. assembly district delegate, you know, for the state convention. You can be a DNC delegate um, for the, you know, the presidential, you know, the, the national convention, which I was, yeah. I've been a delegate for both. You could be a delegate for your central committee, you know. So there's all different opportunities. I think probably what you're talking about is like going on, you know, to the, the national convention and seeing the presidential candidates. Um, it's really easy. And actually, it is a great opportunity. It's a great like starter kit if you're interested or maybe interested or just want to be around electoral politics because yeah. there's a real, you know, it's it's a lot of inside baseball. Um, but once you kind of figure out the 
you know, the logistics, it's not terribly hard. I mean, it's much easier to become a delegate than it is to say run for office in Los Angeles. So okay. you, know, you can, um, the, the hardest part is getting the information because yeah. let's just be honest, the parties and all that, both parties, you know, are not, are not probably the most transparent in their processes. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's okay because they are parties, you know, they're not the government. It's, it's, it's you know, right a party but um usually with like to become a dnc delegate they'll usually have a period where you can you can sign up essentially and then they hold the party holds the county party holds these elections and they're not advertised they're only you know like it's not like a local election it literally is an election they'll hold at a very inopportune time like on you know in a place in LA where there's no parking, so it's like really hard to drag your friends to it. Uh, and it's total like an insider's game. But the plus to that when the season premiere of Game of Thrones is on. But the the good part about that is that like if you're really motivated, you can get like, you know, a hundred of your best friends and like bust them all in and you know, promise them a beer afterwards if they come and vote for you. And all they have to do is be a registered Democrat, um, you know, with wow. Yeah. within your particular district that you're running in. All right. So, we're uh, doing this again. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm getting the school buses. We're yeah. doing it for yeah. you, Sarah. And Michael's going to be the one who films this into a documentary. Totally. You get a talk. You yeah. get like, you know, just serve some micheladas out of the trunk of your car. You promise your yeah, friends, awesome. like whatever they need to like get them out of the house. I'll be the bartender too. I'm exactly, exactly. I would get most of my friends there. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, you should totally do it. So that that was like an interesting, weird little process in and of itself, um, which I would highly recommend if you're interested. But then I have to say, going to the national convention, not to be like a corny, like sort of political nerd about it, was super cool. Yeah, because um, it just was like the energy and. You know, I, I was a delegate during, uh, you know, during, you know, when Hillary was a candidate and oh, wow. all the, you know, the Bernie stuff going on and it was like all this like, yeah, drama. I mean, that was a fascinating convention. It was, a, right. yeah, it was really cool to be in the middle of. And then you like had, you know, Michelle Obama's speech was great. And, you know, it was forever, you know, all the things, you know, all the criticisms around Hillary, you know, it was really exciting to be in there. And you really got swept up in it. And I think one of the things I remember the most, though, is that, like, you're so swept up in the convention, and it's great, you know, it's just great event production in general. So, like, the music and all the celebrities are there. And we left the stadium in Philly just, like, so amped up grabbed, you know, jumped in a taxi. Everyone's just like riding high. And I remember our cab driver was like, yeah, Hillary sucks, I'm voting for Trump. And it was just like, oh, this Joel, you're just like, maybe the America oh. that I know is not the, not the America that's actually going to be voting in November. Like it was just, and even at the time, you're kind of like, eh, whatever, that's like some one-off guy. But yeah. it was total like canary in the coal mine, you know, this wow. weird sort of like dual that's- world. That's so funny. And it's so true. I went to a convention when I was younger and I think it's one of the coolest ways to see how, uh, you know, a party works out of the convention and seeing all different types of people, obviously with the Democrats, there's way more celebrity. So, you know, that's the fun part for a young kid too. But, (laughs) um, it is true. You kind of leave there feeling so energized and saying, we're going to win this. Did you see that speech? Did you, how did you feel after that? And then you get out in the real world and you go, okay, that was almost, that's a bubble. 
Right? Yeah. yeah. A lot of people aren't even watching that, you know, from the other side too. And, uh, you know, that's the tough part, but yeah. it's a great way to get involved in the political system right. for sure. My favorite, maybe not favorite, but I thought it was kind of funny. I guess not for Nelly, but it was funny to me. Like uh, my favorite story from there is that like, you know, they have all these after parties at the convention, which again, Ooh. being like a political nerd, I find fun. But like, yeah. if you actually like look at it from an objective observer, it's like all these people in like khakis and like pantsuits, like, you know, <laughs> getting loose yeah. like after the convention. Just And so they had this, they had this after party at this club and Nelly was the, Nelly was the performer. Oh, wow. Like, you know, for everyone that like grew up in the early 2000s, it's like, oh my God, Nelly. Yeah. Like, yeah. College. And like Nelly performed, and then they like gave him, you know, gave him like some sort of award or something. And you could just see like the dead look in Nelly's eyes of just like, this is what my career has become. (laughs) I'm performing at this like Democratic convention after party with like all of these like people in like blazers. Yeah, whoever (laughs) they are. They're just like, ah. (laughs) <laughs> well, Sarah, you, you've been uh, incredibly generous with your time. Um, I want to sort of ask you uh, one last question here. What do you see as now your biggest challenge going forward, uh, whether it be with your campaign here or the challenge now of what you have to do policy wise? And what do you feel is your strategy now to attack that challenge? <laughs> Oh man! (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, you got to win. So that's challenge one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know, like I mean, I and I learned this in my first race, but like you know, to be successful in a campaign is like a very different skill set than to be successful in the policy making. It's almost like diametrical like differences. and, you know, policy is nuanced and policy can be like really well thought out and lengthy and, you know, getting delving into the weeds and making sure that things work. And that's not what a campaign is. You know, a campaign is not lengthy sort of plans, you know, as much as Elizabeth Warren would want to say, you know, plan, <laughs> yeah. plan for that. Like, that's not what people want to hear. And, you know, oftentimes they don't have the attention span for it anyway. And especially with a race like this, um, you know, the... I don't like to think about this, but this is the reality is that, you know, the vast majority of people that look at their ballot are not going to know who I am. They're not going to know who my opponent is. They're, they're really going to know nothing about the community college board. And so they're going to look at like the ballot designation and be like, Oh, I don't know. I like her last name. I'll vote for her. Or I, um, you know, I think that, you know, yeah, because there's no party affiliation, right? Yeah, exactly. So, Oh, wow. So it's, so the campaign is a lot of, raising money, you know, to get, to get some, as much exposure as you can endorsements and not the endorsements that voters really care about, but like endorsements that the political class will care about. So that will get you more endorsements and will create this sort of like momentum. Um, and so that is, that's like the big challenge of, of figuring out all those landmines and figuring out how to overcome all of those barriers that really have nothing to do with the job, but just have to do with, you know, the crowd politics of Los Angeles. So like making sure you're not pissing off too many people and you're making the right connections and you're raising enough money to scare these people out of the race and whatnot. So that's a big challenge because I'm trying to keep a day job at the same time. Okay. So wow. that, that, that's hard. And I have a two and a half year old, you know, they're in potty training. So like that, that's definitely the biggest challenge in the short term. And then the long term is, you know, how do you do this work in a really thoughtful way? I'm not, under any illusions that 
you know, just because I say I can do things differently, that it's going to be easy. And so it's really like, you know, changing your perception once you win this race and being like, okay, now how do I shift over to like the actual hard work of like changing a system that's hasn't been changed in a long time. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. You've been extremely generous with it. It was great to learn more about the community college uh, district. And this will definitely be really interesting for our listeners. And we're just so excited that you were able to join us. I think it's great what you guys are doing. You know, all politics are local, especially, you know, when you look at to to run on a national stage or to run, you know, for a congressional district, you, you definitely, you know, are running on issues that are issues of education, issues of job creation, you know, all the issues that you're really doing work on at the local, local level. So I'm so thankful that you guys could have me on to talk about that. 